Hello, and welcome to the Data-Driven Marketing Leader podcast, brought to you by Notch. I'm your host, Andrew Bolton, Chief Customer Officer at Notch, and along with Anda Ganska, CEO of Notch, we'll be diving deep into the world of data-driven marketing and exploring how marketers can contribute to business growth at every stage of the customer journey. In each episode, we'll be joined by industry experts, thought leaders, and marketing innovators to discuss insights, strategies, and best practices. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with the latest episodes. To learn more about Notch, you can visit notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H.com. Now, let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to this edition of the Data-Driven Digital Marketer. I'm here today with Chantel Rapport. We discussed earlier that it is Rapport, not Report, <laughs> who is the CMO of Upstart. So welcome to the show, Chantel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We were talking a little bit about your journey to your current role before we started, and you've had a very kind of interesting background, a little bit more non-traditional to other folks in your role. would love for you to just take us through kind of your progression, how you arrived in this role, maybe how it colors a little bit of your approach to the CMO role that might be different than others. Absolutely. So I started my career in management consulting with a focus on go-to-market and how to acquire more profitable customers was really the mandate of this boutique consulting firm that I started at. I truly believe there's no better way or place to start your career than in consulting. It can be an absolute grind, but you get to see so many problems so quickly and get exposure to various types of executives really quickly. And I had an amazing time at the time, probably didn't feel so amazing. But looking back on it, an amazing time in consulting and really learned so, so rapidly. And what I really learned was how to dive into problems head first, how to be in very ambiguous situations, how to work with data that is known and unknown and really figure out quickly, what am I trying to solve for? What are the right questions? And then how do I get there as fast as possible and put an execution plan in place? In doing that, when I went into tech and the world of of in-house operations, I really had a wide variety of things I could do. And I really seemed to gravitate more towards general management, operations. The things that get my brain going are data, numbers, process, how to execute on things. And so I really never thought about myself as a marketer because in my mind, all of the marketing people were the very creative P&G folks that I went to school with and knew very well. And always thought very highly of them, but put them in a very different bucket than what I was in as a kind of general manager type of persona. But as I got closer and closer to growth, what I realized is that marketing in the modern age and many companies, at least it is here at Upstart, is very much more about growth. It is the fundamental question of how do you grow the company? How do you drive revenue and do so efficiently? And there's no greater business problem to work on than that. It is sure a part of that is how do we do that creatively and how do we capture attention of users and all of the things that I think that Mad Men portrays very well in like the agency world and a traditional marketing world. It's so much more than that. So what happened was kind of slowly but surely my goal was just to work on more and more interesting problems. So no part of me ever actually intended to be in marketing. I just wanted to work on the meatiest problem that had the most impact to the business and work on harder and harder and harder things. And that kind of landed me in this position and in this world of quote-unquote growth at Upstart, a fintech company based in San Francisco. And over time, that led me into the chief marketing officer position. And now I have really expanded my 
viewpoints of what it means to be a CMO and, and what that encompasses and what growth truly means. I think it does look different in a lot of places, but it is quite an expansive subset. And to answer kind of the second part of your question, how does that change how I approach the role? I think it means I'm much more driven on first principles approach. What are we trying to solve? What is the output that we're looking for and the outcome of the effort that we're putting in? And how do we do that? Really simplifying the problem and working through the ambiguity of what are we trying to do here into bite-sized problems that we can go and solve. And then recognizing where I need to hire people smarter than me that are experts in various areas. And I think that is an important thing to recognize as well, that it's very, very hard to be an expert in all things, especially as marketing is evolving so quickly. And so one of the first things I had to learn was like, I can't learn this all. What I have to be able to do is have a clear strategy, a clear vision, a clear understanding of how to get there, and then find the right people to row the boat and make sure that we get where we're going. Yeah, it's an interesting way of approaching things. I'm um, certainly there's times where you're faced with like the ultra creative side of marketing and then the ultra data driven side of things, which obviously we'll talk about a bit more today. And like, how do you reconcile those two? Must be an interesting challenge. Yeah, I think we are a very data driven company. And so I think that's why it matched my personality when I joined Upstart almost six years ago. I really loved the culture of data and AI is at the center of our product and our company. And we can talk a little bit about what Upstart actually is and and what they do in a second. But that meant that I was also probably more digestible than the average CMO to data-driven founders. We are a founder-led company because I was on their side of like, oh yeah, this stuff that we can't explain, don't want to do it. I really wanted to be able to show numbers. And I, over time, have had to become more and more comfortable with the and brand side of things and really actually understanding how important creative is in telling our story and how important consistency is in telling our story. So I've done maybe the opposite thing that a lot of marketers that are coming from an agency background have done, which is start with the, I want just the numbers and the output and give me the revenue and the cost efficiency all the time. And really try to take that longer term lens as you start to see some of those tactics wear out over time and be like, oh, now I understand why it's important to like build a relationship or what is the value of this thing that the creatives keep calling brand love to me as a business and starting to translate some of those things and playing that important middle ground where you need to embrace the creative world, but also bring it back to what are we trying to do as a business and marketing and creatives, we exist to build businesses and serve consumers at the end of the day. So we're all aligned with the same goal. It's, I think, a translation exercise at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. Tell us a bit about Upstart in general. It's a unique business. And we were talking earlier that it is B2B and B2C. You're mainly focused on the B2C side of things. But we'd love to just hear a little bit about the business and maybe some of the unique challenges that you're facing being in a fintech company and kind of the volatile market that we're in today. So I'll start with the first question, which is, what is Upstart? So Upstart is an AI lending marketplace. And what that means is that we connect millions of consumers. We've served almost 3 million consumers at this point to almost 100 banks and credit unions, all who leverage our AI models and our applications. So we have a proprietary AI underwriting model. We have a bunch of tech that we have built around the process of underwriting and getting a loan. And essentially, this allows our banks and our lenders on our platform to deliver superior credit products to consumers. And the reality is that credit is extremely important for consumers. 
in any country, but especially in America, where a lot of people think about the American dream. And what really underpins the American dream is credit. When you really think about it, it's it is credit, credit score. That, it's the most important number other than your social security <laughs> well, number and your birth date, I well, think, we, right? Yes, but we can debate that. We don't believe that the credit score should be, but that I think exactly that's what the reality you said right now, but it's, is, yeah. Yeah. And that's a really sad reality. And I think that we would love to change that where you're like, this three digit score defines me and it really shouldn't. But the reality is when we looked at this problem 10 plus years ago, we saw that there was this huge gap between people who had prime credit, who could rock around and say, look at my score. My three digits are so high. And those who had ever defaulted on a loan, meaning that there was this huge chunk of people for a variety of reasons who had low credit scores and were then being stamped with a, you are not credit worthy stamp or sticker on them and being left out sometimes entirely of the credit market or being let in at extremely high prices because most banks and credit unions don't know how to differentiate between those who have a 660 credit score and are uncredit worthy and those who are credit worthy. So they just paint everyone with the same brush and say, we'll just average it out, give you all the same rate or what most traditional banks would do. We just won't lend to you at all because it's not worth it for us to try to differentiate. It's a very, very hard problem to solve. And that's really where we started was in underwriting, which is how do we solve that problem? How do we separate those who are credit worthy from not credit worthy using many, many variables, not just credit score? So we look at over 1,500 different variables when we are evaluating a person. And that helps us determine how risky that borrower is so that we can actually offer to credit to those that are priced appropriately for the lenders and for the consumers. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially allowed us to expand access to credit across all races, genders, ages, really make a meaningful difference in, in access to credit. Yeah, it is a crazy thing to think about is like how limiting it can be. And it's awesome that you guys are taking this more nuanced approach to the value of someone as an applicant. Absolutely. Thinking about kind of the data-driven side of things when it comes to marketing, obviously you're lucky in some ways because you are working within a culture, as you said earlier, that has been data-driven and will always be data-driven. But I'm curious from a team engagement perspective, how do you continue to kind of support and nurture this idea of being very data-driven about things, but then obviously being able to mix in some more of the creative side of marketing as well? Because I'm sure you've got a team that has a mixed level of comfort with being more data-driven versus not. It's an interesting question. I realize we didn't get to your volatility question. So oh, we, can, we can talk about we volatility later. Everyone's probably sick of volatility <laughs> at this point, but yes. So I, I think the is the question here really, how do we balance the data-driven kind of growth marketers and the more creative side of the team? Yeah, and keep people engaged around kind of both of those things. I think that a team needs to be made up of players who all have various strengths and come together to get where you're going as fast as you can. And in a way, it's also fun. We're all here to make work interesting and do great things along the way. I think that culture piece is important as well. But where we started was much more general growth marketers. And for a while, actually, we were very careful to never call ourselves a marketing team. We were Mm. always a growth team. Growth team, yeah. Never a marketing team. And that led for us having a lot more product manager types of people, product marketers, ex-consultants, people who just really liked data and solving problems. Not a lot of people with very specific agency or creative experience or even 
very strong digital expertise, for example, like really being a SME in Meta or Google or SEO. It was a lot of like, we are early. How do we build a business? Who are we trying to target? How do we build smart systems so we can build something in the upstart way and not just copy kind of what other people have done in piecemeal? And over time, as we got bigger and bigger and bigger over the last five years, we've added to the team where we've said, okay, here are areas where we do need expertise. Here are areas that either our current bench falls short in understanding the details where you do actually need a SME. And so we've went and hired those people who are amazing at what they do and have been able to bring that element. And my favorite part has now been watching those people come together and be in one room and have a culture of debate, kind of open conversation to actually hash out, how are we going to do this? What is the right brain saying? What is the left brain saying? And let them come to their own conclusions in the middle. And so I was just having this conversation recently about personas and segmentation. There's a lot of different perspectives people can take on that. And actually watching a live debate happen within my own team of what is the value of personas from the creative perspective, from the product marketing perspective, from the performance leader who's trying to actually execute on these personas. And I think just creating that open conversation is what's most important because ultimately team members will figure it out on their own so long as they have the space for a culture of debate and everyone is open enough to be able to mold their yeah. perspective into something new that is hopefully greater than whatever they brought in to upstart in the beginning. The diversity of ideas is so important in bringing those left brain, right brain people together ultimately will help you end up in a better place. I'm curious, as you've been on this journey, going from like hardcore growth to adding in more marketing-ish to it, how has that changed how you report up the chain when you talk about the success of your team? Is it still very like numbers, data-driven focus, or are there some of the other kind of metrics that are maybe call them a little bit softer that are beginning to creep in there? And what do you do to make that as tangible as possible for the higher ups the chain? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So I think when we are talking about core growth activities, as you mentioned, there's key metrics that we're constantly reporting against. And it's really easy for us to show progress there. But as we have transitioned into a longer term view, what I like to do is really just hold the short term kind of sales overnight and the long term brand over time and the ROI that comes with that separately mm. and structure our discussions over those two things so that they don't feel kind of jumbled. In the short term, we're here to drive revenue and do it as efficiently as possible? How do we acquire a borrower for the lowest possible cost and drive revenue? That might be a one month, one quarter, two quarters, three quarters plan, relatively short term. And we need to do that. We are a revenue engine at the end of the day. We need to ensure that our business as usual day-to-day engine is working really well. That's typically the performance marketing side of the house and everything that supports that. Then there's this grander vision of, well, where do we want to go in five years? If we want to be the number one destination for consumer credit, if we want to build XYZ, how do we get there? And really breaking down those steps, a lot of that is where we find this like foundational brand work. And what's important in talking to you know either a CEO or a board is explaining the connection point. So we're not just chasing the shiny brand because it's the fun thing to do and the creative team wants to do it. It's like, what is this in service of and being able to explain 
what we're doing now and connect it to where we're going. I think that's relevant for brand. It's also relevant for technical infrastructure, which we're doing a lot of building now as well, where you can't have the things that you want overnight. Data is the same way. You can't just immediately collect realities. You can't just have every piece of data you've ever wanted. You have to invest in actually collecting the data and organizing the data in a way that's usable. And so you have to choose, do we want to make this investment or not? And what's important is that that investment has a much longer ROI on it, but you're painting the kind of ROI picture and exactly when you expect to have results. And that means we might fail at some things, but keeping everyone aligned of like, here's what we're trying to do. Here's when we expect return from this. And here are the gates along the way to ensure that we're marching in the right direction. So if our ultimate goal is creating LTV by having a stronger brand, what should we be able to see within the next 12 months? Is it stronger engagement? Well, what does engagement look like? Are we measuring the right things to actually say, yep, looks like more people are clicking on our emails and coming back or we have stronger brand awareness. We have more mentions of the specific term in our reviews that we're really trying to understand. So thinking about what those shorter term metrics are that might not be our main revenue metrics, but they ladder up to the big pursuit at the end of the day that might take us two to three to five years to actually materialize. And so breaking those down, I think is important because it's easy to say, well, we want to move our unaided brand awareness number. But that is like a, hey, the question will always come from a very data-driven border CEO. Like, who cares? Yeah, why does it matter? So adding that, tying that really to revenue. And then B, those are big numbers and very, very hard to move quickly. So how do you make sure that you are litmus testing your work along the way and still doing the right things? Yeah. I mean, at Notch, I was very focused on measurement and analytics and measurement frameworks, specifically around content. And content mm-hmm. is one of these things where it's notorious, where people get really hung up on a media metric, but it doesn't actually lead to a business result. And so we actually look at very similar to you, the same thing, which is there's content that's there to build brand. It's upper funnel. It has a job to do, but it's going to be a longer burn to get you to the promised land, but you need to do that work and you need to measure it correctly. And then there's content that's meant to drive conversion. And it's much more about providing utility and getting people to convert right then and there, or at least in the nearer term. And you need to measure that differently. And so I think it's wise how you kind of bifurcate those two goals in a way, because when you're reporting up and you're commingling them, sometimes it can be really confusing. And I've seen lots of board meetings where you start with the brand and they're trying, people are already thinking conversion and they're trying to be like, well, how does this connect? And it can become very muddled. Yeah. I love what you said there. I think some of it is really just setting expectations. I think at the end of the day, it's like, why are you investing in this? What is Mm -hmm. the return you expect on, on what timeline? And how do you make sure that you are constantly feeling good that you're going in the right direction. Sometimes you might swing and say, we're not going to know if this was right or not for two years and we're going to make the investment and we're willing to take the risk. I think, you know, is a great book called Thinking in Bets. And the summary that I always take away from that is like good decisions, (laughs) bad outcomes can happen all the time. And I think just re-underwriting, are we having a good decision-making process? Did we make a great decision? That is a very different question than what was the outcome. And so being aligned and not coupling those things is also important because you could have a brand effort that says, this didn't go well. And if you're trying to convince a non-brand person to do brand and you launch one brand thing and it feels like we just lit a bunch of money on fire with some agency, they are never going to do it again. It is really hard to decouple. Like This was a good decision. Here's why brand matters. Here's why we should keep investing in it. And separate that from, 
look, we spent all this money on a shining asset because I told you it was going to be important. And now the market has changed and that asset is sitting on a shelf somewhere that we spent a lot of money and time on. And so in 12 months from now, when we have budget to spend, is that what we're going to run and spend our budget on? Probably not. Now those people feel a little burnt. And so I think connecting those expectations are important. Yeah. And getting agreement and alignment on the measurement framework before you do something versus trying to do it in flight or at the end is also incredibly important because if you can get mutual support for, hey, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to measure it. And this is what success looks like. And this is what success does not look like or here are the leading indicators. Then if someone tries to call you out on it, you can always go back. Well, we talked about this and this is how this ladders up to the greater goal. Right. To some extent, this has been hard for me personally and definitely a journey as someone who is very growth data oriented early on would only want to do things if it improved conversion. It was like, what, how am I moving the funnel? Every single thing had to be a conversion win. And I think where we got to at some point was there's also trust in research and data, but also building on intuition and the faster you can build steps in the right direction rather than these like micro steps you will likely get to your destination faster. It might mean you're taking on more risk and you might Mm -hmm. fail. And so setting guardrails, I think is important, but just taking bigger swings to get there and not of death by a thousand cuts a little bit of like, we're going to test a million micro things and then launch them only if they're winners. And we're going to build a site by testing every color and every button, which is where I started versus moving from like, what is the brand that we want? What is the story we're trying to tell? What is the major outcome? Okay, great. What are our conversion guardrails? We absolutely cannot have conversion decline. But if right. before we would have A-B tested something and said, if the challenger is not a winner, we'd stick with control. Now we might say, if the challenger is not a loser, so long as it is more consistent and in line with the brand we want to build long-term, we're rolling it out. And yeah. so being a bit more comfortable with like, what are we building towards rather than just letting experiment results dictate what we're building, because that's also means that you're constantly stuck in a now stage. You can only ever plan for the next few weeks because you're only building on iterative results rather than saying like, where are we going this quarter, next quarter, year after that, year after that, and really trying to build a long-term roadmap. And I found, especially as our team size has grown, that longer-term vision is important. You know, we have almost 100 people working on growth. We're not going to dictate a plan until we get the results of these 10 experiments that we're running. That is not a very interesting or motivating vision to get behind. And I ultimately actually think it gets you there a lot slower. Yeah, totally. I love that evolution that you've made personally, but also how that's also evolved like with the needs of the business. I mean, that's what it's all about is looking at different inputs and making changes and adapting along the way. Speaking of adapting along the way, we'll get to the topic du jour that everyone talking about now, right now, is AI. And where does AI fit within all of this? And we talked a little bit earlier about where you fall within the spectrum of like complete skeptic to like completely gung-ho. And Mm -hmm. sounded a little bit more on the gung-ho side, but obviously in a controlled, highly regulated space, there are some guardrails. Can you just talk generally about how you're thinking about AI? Let's call it for the next 12 months, because there's lots of stuff that we can talk about in the future, but maybe in the nearer term of What are you excited about? Where are some of the places that you think it adds the most value? And if there's any kind of like watch outs. The category of AI, which, as you mentioned, is a hot topic now, but it has been at the center of what we've been doing at Upstart since the beginning of our business. I mean, we are an AI company. So it has been at the center of our product. It literally is our product. But it's also been the center of our marketing. We have used AI models in all of our marketing 
from the very beginning. And mostly because, like I mentioned, we are a non-traditional marketing team. It was the only thing we knew. We said, well, yeah, great, like, we're oh, really just, good at just AI. Use the, use the product. <laughs> right. What are we going to do? Okay, let's build a model to select. Let's build a model for targeting. Let's build a model for creative. Let's build LTV models, MTA models. Like Our strong suit was in ML. And it has always been a very big kind of motivating factor to me to really let and they'll be the center of growth. I think when we start getting into some of the generative AI that's coming out and is advancing just at this rapid, rapid pace, it's been around for a while, but now with all the attention and funding, et cetera, is evolving so quickly. We just get to a place of personalized marketing and creative so much faster. And mentioned wanting to cap the discussion at 12 months. I won't get into where that's going because I... talk about the groundwork that we need to lay to get there. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I think that is what the next year is about. It's about understanding. I think it can be very dangerous to just be excited about tools that you don't understand and understand what the value is and how you're going to use them. And you can spend a lot of time chasing shiny objects. But really thinking about what are the problems that I'm trying to solve today and are there better, faster ways to do them? And the reality of this evolution just means that we need to now more than ever be constantly reevaluating our toolkit against what's being launched and what's being built to make sure that we are using the best of the best and that we as humans are not afraid to get help, I think, from some of these AI tools as well as like a new piece. I don't believe it's going to take over anyone's job in the next 12 months, you know, caveat with the 12 months. But... I think we can embrace it to make ourselves a lot more efficient. Everything from the blank page problem where you spend an hour staring at a blank page and then you can write the thing in 15 minutes, but getting you past that first time, creating templates, just having someone to bounce ideas off of and really like kickstart your brainstorming process. Now, all of a sudden, you can essentially brainstorm independently using ChatGPT or other tools. And then expanding our ability to be creative where we think about these things that more like shower thoughts where it's like, I would have this crazy idea, but how do you make it a reality? Because I'm not an engineer. I'm not a this, I'm not a that. I don't actually know how to take something so crazy and translate it into something tangible. I mean, that is rapidly changing now. Now I can actually go ask someone how to do that. I can use all these integrations and APIs that are coming out to build for me. And I think that is really, really interesting. It just unlocks potential for those who are curious enough to go down the road and try to self-learn as fast as possible. Yeah. So there's two things there. It's not replacement, it's enablement. And in a perfect world, there would be a chat GPT enabled shower where when you have an idea, you could just <laughs> yes. shout it out and it would just take yes. it and then just build something. Exactly. I think, I mean, this thing is evolving so quickly that in 12 months from now on that timeline, maybe we'll be there. It'll it be like the me. Alexa enabled app where I can just, you know, and then by the time you're done, I got blueprints and a supplier ready in China <laughs> and Amazon store <laughs> set up and I'm all of a sudden a business owner. So I think we could be there soon. That would be scary. I have a lot of rogue <laughs> ideas that some are better than others, and I forget most of them. So I don't know if that's for better or for worse. Same. Maybe a little bit more tactical. Like, how are you thinking about the use of AI, like within the customer journey now? And are there any ways that you can speak about of how are you using it as a way and a means to drive either the brand or the growth kind of mindset? Yeah. So we use AI today for 
targeting and selection. Who are we going to send mail to, for example? Who are we going to show offers to? Just like third parties are using AI for all sorts of things, including targeting like Google and Meta are doing this in their platform. So any marketer who's doing digital marketing is already using this. We've gone a bit one step further and, and built our own internal models to layer on top of that and work with our more direct channels like a direct mail where we control the experience or our life cycle where we are directly responsible for deciding who we send what and when. The other piece is the creative selection, which is what creative will this person respond to? We are a multi-product business. And so it's really important for us to start to think about recommendation engine and what product is best for a consumer at what time, in what medium, with what creative. And that is where models can really help us and our AI can help us determine those answers much faster than us having to paint widespread brush and say, well, this segment of users and the old school way of doing it, like this segment, if they check these boxes, they fit into segment A, and segment A gets this creative, and we have to send them. The reality of where our AI models get to is completely individualized marketing. And we are not there yet, but it is not hard to see us getting there soon, which is just being able to understand an individual level what is best for that user and then executing against it. And that just enables better efficiency and more time for the more creative ideation to happen and the more strategic ideation to happen so that we're not spending all of our time in the places that can be handled by it much faster than we can do them. For sure. I think that in the future and well, actually probably tomorrow in the future, like that close marketing measurement will be less about measuring assets, whether it's a piece of creative, a content asset, a video, whatever it may be. And it'll be more about breaking it down into its attributes or its different characteristics Mm -hmm. And then understanding how those different characteristics perform and using AI to know what you may know about an individual to kind of put those different characteristics or attributes together into a new piece of content or into a new landing page or something that is tailored for that individual, but based upon understanding performance. Yeah, exactly. And I think the reality is that consumers are also increasingly demanding personalized experiences. And so they want that. The marketers want that because it allows us to be way more efficient. Let's spend more money on those that we want, less money on, on those that we don't want, and be able to craft narratives and build brands in just a more interesting, more efficient way. Yeah, this is probably a tangent we won't go down in the time we have left, but it is actually interesting how consumers are more expectant of personalized experiences, but privacy regulations and tracking are completely opposed to that or kind of in opposition of that. And so it will be interesting to see how regulation and consumer preference shape kind of where the ability to do these kind of like high-level personalization type tactics goes? I think it's a bang on point and is super interesting because we are releasing all of these tools that would enable personalization. I think the average consumer would say they want personalization, but they're also Mm -hmm. scared about sharing their data, which is the thing that drives personalization. Or a better chance of getting a loan or like all these other things too, you know? A hundred percent. And I think that that really comes down to... When I think about why are consumers worried about privacy, there's a lot of a lot of pockets there. So we yeah. won't have to dive into all of them. <laughs> but I think one reason is that 
they're scared of the unknown. You don't know where your data is being sent, who it's being sold to, how it's being used. Is it being used for good, giving me a access to new loan products, or is it being yeah. used for bad and sold somewhere else? And that unknown is really scary. So the easiest thing is to just click the do not accept, hide all yeah. my cookies sort of thing, because you feel the pain a little bit less often. You don't understand as an average consumer where you're getting benefit. And so I think it's up to us as advertisers to explain that benefit. And I think it's a really interesting like re-leveling of a lot of companies who are losing access to data and all, all the kind of cookie list world things that are happening. But first party data is going to become more and more and more important and building internal models and relying less on the black box models of external businesses. And I'm grateful that I feel like we've always been there as just like the kind of what we do. But first party data is now going to be more important, which means we need the UX, we need the brand, right? It comes back to brand of, well, if we would need first party data, how do we make sure people give it to us? Well, people will give it to us if they trust us and we're explaining why we need it well. Well, how are yeah. they going to trust us? Well, we have a brand that they believe in and they trust we're not a random internet company. Yeah, you're providing them value. You're moving them along a customer journey and nurturing them so that when they get right. to that point of like, hey, I'm going to give you some of this hard-earned protected data, I trust that it's going to go to the right place and I'm going right. to get something in exchange for that. Exactly. I think that will be more and more critical and people will have to rely more on their own systems. We have been a little bit, I would say, unlucky in the way that financial services is highly regulated. And so we actually have never had access to many, many attributes on Meta and Google. We are in our category, just not allowed to access targeting attributes like most brands would be. But the plus side of that is as those things are being taken away, we've never had them. You're like, I'm we a pro at this used, already. We're very used to operating in that world and understanding like what is the data that we're going to ask consumers for and why and ensure that that exchange is fair and valuable and that it's clear that we're only asking for data that will give value to them. If it's not adding value to the consumer, we don't need it. We won't ask for it. But really making sure that we're explaining that delivery of how we do things and that we're building in-product growth and data collection that makes sense for us. Yep. I couldn't agree with you more on that. So it's a good place to end it. All we right. could probably have a follow-up podcast and just talk about first-party data for you know another <laughs> 35 minutes or so. But Chantal, it's been awesome having you on the show. Really appreciate your time, your insights. I think everyone will appreciate it. So thank you very much for everyone for listening. Stay tuned for uh, future episodes. And thank you again to Chantal. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew.